John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We've, um, since the beginning of 2012, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. We've, our plan is to go through the entire Gospel of John by the end of this year, or early into next year. That's what we want to do. We're going to preach through the entire Gospel of John. It gives us a good chance to have a really hard, long, hard look at Jesus, what we can learn about him, what we can learn from him, um, and, make, and encourage our faith as we put our hope and our trust more and more in him. Let me recap a little bit of where we've come from so far. The first few chapters of John, first of all we've studied, we've seen, John, uh, we've seen Jesus call his disciples, we've seen him showing, the, demonstrating the kingdom of God in performing miraculous signs, but also teaching about the kingdom. He's, taught, um, he's done the new wine of the kingdom, where he turned the water into wine at Cana in Galilee. He's talked about the new temple, which is him. He said this old temple in Jerusalem, where you go to, that's going to go. And actually, I'm going to rebuild it in three days, talking about his death and his resurrection, saying, actually, I'm going to be the place where you meet God. It's no longer going to be a building over there. It's going to be me. He's also talked about the new birth in John chapter 3, saying you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Um, he's seen a response to his teaching from the Jewish, kind of his own people, the Jews, God's own people, the Jews, that was hesitant at best, sometimes sceptical, sometimes eh, not so sure about this. Jesus' character, but then he goes to Samaria in John chapter 4 and we find the response of the Samaritans who the Jews looked down on as tainted half-breeds really didn't want to deal with them, they were ceremonially unclean but Jesus goes there, has a brief conversation with a woman who suddenly is transformed, she goes and tells her little uh, village, a town she lives in they all transformed and respond to Jesus and suddenly there's a kind of an outbreak of people turning to Jesus in Samaria So the response of God's own people, the Jews, at the time, wasn't good. The response of those outside, the Samaritans, was completely sort of overwhelming and in favour of Jesus. And then last week uh, we looked at the healing of the official son, about one man's kind of journey of faith. He came to Jesus, he was desperate, his son was dying. I mean, as a parent, that is the most desperate situation to be in. So he comes to Jesus, Jesus speaks a word, his son is healed, but not only that, is the man is transformed by putting his faith and trust in Jesus and his whole household, it said. So they all come to faith in Jesus, they all become Christians, but the, those kind of watching on the outside are still hesitant and sceptical about who this Jesus is, but one or two are, many, are putting their faith and trust in him. So John chapter 5, let's read from verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these laid a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralysed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus has withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. All right. Dynamic changes in John chapter 5, 6 and 7, which we're going to be covering over the next few weeks. The, the hesitant response of the Jewish people towards Jesus as their Messiah, the one who's come, the one they've been waiting for, prophesied about in the Old Testament, the fact that God has come to his people as they're expecting, it moves from kind of hesitant scepticism to outright opposition, even official opposition. So what we've got here is a few chapters where the, 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 the course of the response to Jesus, kind of from the, the Jewish authorities, is outright opposition. Actually, they don't like him, they want to deal with him, they want to get rid of him, which kind of sets in motion the events that lead up to his death. In chapter 5, uh, we've got a dispute over the Sabbath, which begins in this passage and then continues on into what is going to be looked at next week by Mike, um, and about discussing about Jesus' relationship with his Father in heaven. Chapter 6, we have another miracle of Jesus, a famous one, feeding the 5,000. And Jesus then teaches out the back there. And even in response to that, many people turn away from him. His teaching is so difficult. Despite the massive miracle he's kind of caused right in front of them, fed them, many turn away. In chapter 7, Jesus is charged with demon possession. And the authorities are trying to arrest him. So there's there's this trajectory that John is setting out in his gospel where the opposition of Jesus is increasing. It's ratcheting up and it's becoming outright opposition towards him. And it's beginning with this event here that he's outlined. So, what happens here? Jesus goes to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. We've looked at one of the characteristics of John's Gospel, is that he focuses a lot of his stories and narratives in Jerusalem as opposed to Galilee. You read the other three Gospels, most of the activity is centred around Galilee, uh, places there, Nazareth, where Jesus kind of grew up, and all the activity and the miracles there. Um, But when John wrote his gospel, he focused most of the activity around Jerusalem and some of the key feasts. And Jesus has gone back up to Jerusalem for one of the key feasts in their calendar. It doesn't say which one. In chapter 2, he went up and it said specifically it was for the Passover, which they celebrated every year. This one, it doesn't doesn't say which one. It can't be relevant in John's eyes or he'd have let us know. But he goes up there and he goes to Jerusalem and he goes to this place by the Sheep Gate, which is in the north of the city, and to a pool called Bethesda. Bethesda was, uh, actually means house of mercy. And at this place, where it was the house of mercy, there were many, many people who were disabled, and they congregated around the pool. It says they were blind, it says they were lame, it says they were paralysed. It must have been quite a depressing place, where if you had gone there, there was lots and lots of sick people. And they were sick in a way that no one could do anything about them. Their, their condition was what they had. It couldn't be healed. If you're blind, that's it, you're blind. If you, you're paralysed, you're paralysed. There was no modern medicine that could help them. They were just there. And so Jesus went to this place, and I imagine it being a depressing place with just lots of people kind of just lying around, stuck in their sickness, in their illness. And he goes there and he sees a man who is, um, is one of these invalids. And it says he has been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years, which, looking around, I bet most of you aren't even that old. I'm 38. 
I know you, you wouldn't know. You're thinking 25 tops, I know. But I'm actually 38. And you think this guy was an invalid for 38 years. So he was either, he might have been 38, might have been older, something might have happened to him, we don't know. But for the entire period of my life, to date, he was on a mat. Because we read that later. He was lying on a mat. So he would have been, spent his days, day in, day out, year in, year out, up to my age, lying out on a mat, not being able to move, not being able to just do things. He would have probably had to have been carried around by friends, by family members, by others who just took mercy and pity on him. Maybe he was carried there every day to the pool. We don't even know if he lived there. Or he was just there a lot of time. People maybe brought him food because he begged for it. We just don't know. But he was there for 38 years in this horrible, difficult predicament. Um, and Jesus comes to him. It says it. And there's, a, there's something we can take away from there. Jesus comes to, to deal with this guy and we know what happens because we've, we've read the rest of the story. But something we can take away is if you're in a long-term situation of difficulty, Jesus knows about it. Jesus understands. You might be thinking, I'm dealing with something that is just one of these things that seems to be running on and on and on. It might be a, a, an illness, a sickness, something that you've had for a while. It might be a relational issue. It might be something that you're dealing in your personal life or in your work life. And it's just something that seems to be going on and on and on. And you're praying and saying, God, release me from this. God, do something in this situation. And, and you're, kind of, you're feeling no respite. But I wanted to say to you today that Jesus knows about it. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows where you are and he is with you in it. And he, he comes and he ministers to people in those situations. So there's this guy there and he's lying there and Jesus sees him and it says he knew he'd been there a long time. We don't exactly know how he knew. It could be supernatural knowledge that Jesus displayed when he spoke to the woman at Samaria. And he, and he said to the woman, didn't he, bring your husband. I haven't got any husband. He said, no, you're right, you've actually had five. And the guy you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband. So Jesus has divine supernatural knowledge. He said it when he called his disciples. And he said to, I think it was Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the tree before Philip came and got you. You know, he, he, can, he uses his divine attributes. So we don't quite exactly know how it's, he, he knew, but he knew. He had an insight into this guy's uh, condition. Into it. And he, he asked him a direct question. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Which is, you know, you might think, well, that's, is that an odd question? He's lying there, you know, does he want to get healed? But the, the, for this guy, his entire identity, his entire life was caught up in being an invalid. It's all that he had known. He wouldn't have known anything else. 38 years worth, whether it was his entire 38 years or there was a period beforehand, there would have been a majority of life where he would have spent it lying on a mat, begging, asking people to do things for him, relying on others, helping him out, and that would have been who he was. That was his life. He, didn't, he wouldn't have known anything else. All the things that we kind of can take for granted, working and, and just moving around, and anything, you know, going to make a cup of tea, he couldn't even do that. You know, he had to rely on someone else to it. And Jesus challenges him and basically says, do you want to get well? Because if the answer is yes, if the answer is yes, I want to get well, what he's basically saying is I am prepared to give up everything I know Everything I understand in this moment is going to change. Because if I am well, I can't do what I'm doing now. Do you know what I mean? I won't be the guy lying on the mat and people carrying around. Because they'll say, get up, do it yourself. <laughs> you can now do it. You know? We don't have to wait on you anymore. Everything's going to change. And this is a, 
This is an interesting challenge when it comes to following Jesus. Because ultimately that's what happens when we become a Christian. That's the challenge. Are you willing to give up everything from the past? Are you willing to lay that down before God? Are you willing to put your faith and trust in him and follow him and trust him with everything? Because this guy, if he was healed, he was going to have to give up all he knew. The way he got his income, the way he related to people, because they would all change for him. And the man responds. Now, you may have noticed in your Bibles, there's a, a verse and a half missing. Did the eagle eye not mention that? I think it jumps from, like, was it verse 3 to verse 5? There's no verse 4. If you check your footnotes, there was a little bit of text that they, um, they believe was inserted in the later copies of the Gospels to try and explain a little bit of what happened. And that's why you don't actually find it in, your, in, in the actual Bible. They stick in a footnote just to sort of fill out the story. And it basically um, says that there was a belief, a superstition, that at the pool in Bethesda it was like a spring, and every so often the spring would bubble be a bubbling of air being trapped and coming up. And they, they, the superstition was that an angel would come down and stir the waters. That was what the superstition was. And it was the first person in to the pool after it had been stirred would be healed. That was kind of what it was about. And maybe that was why they were all there, thinking we're waiting for the, 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 the bubbles to come up from the water. And when that happens, first one in is healed which could be quite a pull. I don't quite know how it worked with the, the blind, the lame and the paralyzed getting in the water could be difficult. The blind don't know where to go, which way, and if you're all trying to get healed, you'd lie to them, wouldn't you? The blind guy would go, oh, the water's bubbling, which way? They all go, this way, go over there, and they'd go the wrong way, wouldn't you? So you could get in the water, but then the lame and the paralyzed couldn't get in. I mean, they need people to help them. So there's this funny dynamic where they were, they were waiting for the pool to... Um, to bubble, and, and then they would need to get in there if they were going to get healed. That was the belief. And the man responds to Jesus, do you want to get well? And he says, sir, I've no one to get me in the pool when the water stirred up. Someone get down the steps before me. It was kind of a grumbling response. He's obviously, he's an invalid. He can't get up. I can't get down there. I've got no one to help me um, get into the pool. Jesus' response is eight words. I counted them. I hope they're eight. Get, get up. Take up your bed and walk. The guy's saying, Jesus says, do you want to get well? The guy's saying, I can't get into the water when it bubbles. I've got no one to help me. He's probably said that lying on his back or on his side to Jesus, who would have been standing over him or kneeling beside him. He said, I can't get into the water. And Jesus just says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. This is, um, what this is echoing is the, the creative power of the words of God. We go back to the beginning of our Bibles. What does it say? It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. And it says, God spoke. What did he say? Let there be light. And there was. And John is echoing this. Because even at the beginning of his gospel, how did the gospel begin? We looked at that. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And that word was God. And so actually, God, the word has come to earth. And he is speaking out that creative word right to this man, he's saying, get up. And there is that powerful echo of the creative voice of God speaking into a situation succinctly, shortly. It wasn't long and rambling. It was just words straight into it. And what happened to this man? And it says, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. This man, there was a total transformation in his life. He would have been 
completely healed. He would have been a guy lying on his mat where he had spent decades of his life. We don't know kind of what condition he's in, but if you kind of thought of, well, let's sort of extrapolate out and put some flesh on this, he would have probably had muscles that were not as strong as they could have been because they wouldn't have been used. He may have had sores from lying on the mat and shifting his body weight because he wasn't moving around. He would have probably been generally a weakened condition because he didn't have to exercise his body. And Jesus speaks and he immediately gets up. He then rolls up his mat or he put it over his shoulder or under his arm and he can walk. He can walk. The word of God breaking into a situation completely can transform it. One word from God can change a situation that is completely hopeless to one that is completely alive. Something, just one word from God can just change anything around. And for this guy, it was a healing. He just spoke that one word and everything transformed. We've seen it already with um, the woman at the well. Jesus just spoke one word to her and he said about there's this living water. He says, if you get this water, you'll never thirst. And she says to him, well, where do I get this water? Who? And he said, there's one going to come. And she says, well, who is this guy? And he says, it's me. And instantly, she is transformed to the point where she runs home to a village and gets everyone else and says, the, he's the guy. He's the one. And they're all transformed. A word of God can transform any situation at any time. And it can turn it around completely. And this guy is a recipient of the healing. He is healed to a point where he doesn't just get up. He doesn't feel a bit better. He can get up and walk, which he couldn't do. He can roll up his mat, which he couldn't do. He can carry his mat, carry it off. And it's just further evidence that he was completely healed. This guy was totally physically restored. With a wonderful, creative miracle of God there where he has just taken a man who has been decades out and suddenly he is up walking around. The, 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 the difference between him would have been staggering between before and after, just with a few words from the mouth of Jesus. And you'd think that there would be much rejoicing and much celebration of this incredible miracle that would have happened in front of people's eyes. And we see the result. Let's look at the reaction to this miracle. It says, Now this day was the Sabbath, a Jewish rest day, inscribed in the, the Ten Commandments. God had given this to the people of his people, the people of Israel. He said, you will have this day. And so um, the guy... He's walking around with his bed on the Sabbath and like, I've been healed. I've been healed. Isn't that wonderful? But people take offence because according to the teachings, teachings of the rabbis, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. It's not, it's not allowed. It breaks the rules. And the, um, the Old Testament kind of um, had said, you, you should not work on the Sabbath. You will have a rest. There will be this rest day. Uh, for my people. But the, the teachers over the years, over the centuries, basically had, had broadened that into 39 different categories, which covered kind of work in their opinion. And one of them was carrying your bed. That's one of the things they said, that constitutes work. If you carry your mat around, that's one of these uh, things that um, you can't do. And what we find here again is the tradition that has built up in Judaism coming against what God had originally said, and his heart. And we saw this in chapter 2 with the temple. Jesus went to the temple for the Passover, the great festival. They would remember them being free from Egypt, the single kind of biggest event in Jewish history, and they would celebrate it. But he got to the temple courts, and what did he find? Them changing money 
and, and selling cattle and basically trying to fleece people. And Jesus is like, no, what have you done? You've, you've taken something that God had laid down and you've added all this man-made gump to it and it's just it's getting in the way. So he overturns the tables and he drives out the cattle and he says, this is, you know, my father's house will be a house of prayer, a house of worship, but we're focused on it and all this other stuff's not going to come in. And we've got another situation like this where what God had intended, where people would take rest from their regular employment, that's what work kind of would have been, where they'd amend what they do regularly, six days a week, they'd take a rest day um, and rest from that and give it over to God as a recognition of who God was and that he was in charge and they would, they would take rest from it and they would give worship to him on that day. Now, I think we can clearly say that this invalid's job was not carrying beds. Okay? So him carrying a bed around, he wasn't doing his regular employment. We can argue that because clearly he didn't have a job as a bed carrier. So he wasn't working in that sense. He was carrying his bed around um, because he had been told and he had just been healed. And from the Jewish point of view, the Sabbath marked them as different. The, 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 the day of Sabbath marked them different from the other nations around who didn't have that concept. So they fiercely defended it. They fiercely defended it because God had given it to them, enshrined um, kind of in the law, and, and, and they would defend it. But the problem was they had added so much to it that the practice of observing the Sabbath, had killed off the spirit of what it meant. And so this guy who had just been healed, which was incredible, awesome, miraculous work of God, is now being told off for carrying his bed on the Sabbath day, and they're more interested in telling him off from actually saying, aren't you the invalid guy who's just been on his mat for 38 years and you're now walking around? What happened there? They're actually more interested in telling him off for carrying his bed as they perceive breaking the Sabbath. The irony is, who's the one who told him to carry his bed? The one who made the Sabbath in the first place. So what does this guy do? Being confronted. He does what Adam did in the garden. He blames somebody else. <laughs> Why are you carrying your bed? He's like, oh man, that guy, he told me, the other guy, the guy who healed me, he told me to carry it. Passing the buck, pushing it over, um, onto someone else. It's interesting though, actually, that you think the person who has the authority to heal probably has the authority to interpret the law as well. And so actually, if he said you can carry your bed on the Sabbath, maybe you can carry your bed on the Sabbath, but they don't ask that. He repasses over the responsibility of what happened to Jesus, and the, the authorities now become more concerned, because you've got one guy breaking the Sabbath, but then they now find out, someone told you to do it. Someone's telling you to break the Sabbath. Okay, so we've got someone here now, not just doing it, maybe out of ignorance, maybe you know, for whatever reason, we've now got someone telling you, actively going out and teaching you to break the Sabbath. We've got someone on the loose who could be undermining what we believe in. So they're now like, uh-oh, they've gone to DEFCON 3 here. You know, someone have got to find this guy. Who's the guy who's done it? And so they start asking, who is this one? But he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> That's also interesting, isn't it? Guy healed you. 38 years, you're now walking around. It'd be good to know his name, don't you think? You know, someone who's done that for you. This guy is totally ignorant. He has no idea who Jesus is. And the great irony of this story, the sad irony, is there's been a miraculous healing and they're more interested in who broke their little rules about the Sabbath. There's been a healing that is staggering and they're more interested in who 
who's, who broke the rule. They're blind. They're missing it. They're missing who Jesus is. And Jesus has quietly slipped away into the crowd. And then, so they obviously, they can't find Jesus. He's not around. And then Jesus comes back to the man. He comes back to the man and he, he finds him in the temple. So he's obviously wandering around, enjoying his newfound freedom that his healed body kind of um, allows for him. And he finds him in the temple courts. And Jesus gives his, 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 this kind of direct command. It's interesting. It says, verse 14, it says, See, you're well. He's obviously well. He's obviously still walking. Maybe he's still carrying his mat. He's probably dumped it by now because he doesn't want to get told off anymore. We don't know. And he's, Jesus says, Sin no more that nothing may work, nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And what, what he's describing there, what, what, what had happened to him would have been an invalid for 38 years, which on my standard of bad things that can happen to you, that's pretty high. You think about it. Give up 38 years of your life lying down and not being able to move anywhere. And Jesus says, Sin no more or something bad, something worse, sorry, something worse than that has happened to you. And it touches on a couple of areas here. It touches on the whole area of sickness and sin and also the wider area of the judgment of God. First of all, sickness is connected to sin because it's the result of the fall. When Adam sinned, Eve sinned, sickness, death came into the world. It was something that happened. It says, you know, we're going to die, all these things. The wages of sin is death, ultimately. And all this stuff kind of came into the world um, as a result of sin. But not all sickness or tragedy is a result of sin. Jesus even said in Luke 13, he was describing there was a tower, there was a horrible accident where they were building a tower, it collapsed, people died as a result of that. And he actually specifically says, well, that wasn't related to anyone's sin. It was just, we're in a broken, fallen world and things like that happen. Bad things happen. People die. And Jesus says, and we'll see in John chapter 9 later on, is a man who's born blind. And the disciples meet to say, well, who sinned, him or his parents, that he's blind? And Jesus said, no, it's not because of that reason at all. But in, in other cases, there is direct, result, direct correlation between sickness and sin. Acts chapter 5 is the really scary example where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the apostles and they're just struck dead. <laughs> and the husband does it and then the wife comes in and he says, you know, she, she carries on the lie and she dies. And you're like, oh man. And then we find in Acts chapter, uh, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 11, there's another incident where there talks about, Paul talks to the church in Corinth about the Lord's Supper, about the bread and the wine and when they're sharing it. And he talks about people who aren't taking it seriously and being sinful at it and just basically you know, not acting properly at that point. And it says what happens to them. It says some of them are sick and some have actually died as a result of this because God's judgment has fallen upon them because of the way they've acted in that environment. And so there is a sense that some, sickness, some sin is related to sickness. And sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is. And Jesus is saying to this guy, actually... Sin no more, because something worse is going to happen to you. And what he's pointing ahead to is what he's going to deal with in the rest of the chapter, which is the whole area of judgment. Actually, he's pointing, what's worse than a level of sickness? Actually, it's the judgment that's going to come from beyond that. Verses, look at verse 28, 29. He's talking about the judgment of God that will fall on you as a sinner if you haven't put your faith and trust in him and who he is. And so he's actually giving this man an opportunity and actually saying, you know, come to me. Come to me. Let's deal with this. Deal with your sin. Go to God. Put your faith and trust in him. Or what, what's happened to you up till now that 
being an invalid, something worse is going to come upon you. Something, something terrible. And unfortunately, how does this man respond? With repentance and faith? Unfortunately not. What does he say? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. What was his response? Grass up Jesus. That's what he did. Maybe it was out of fear for him because he had been caught breaking the Sabbath by their, their rules and he was fearful for his own kind of safety and what they might do to him. He wanted to deflect the hostility away from him and onto somebody else. We see, no, unfortunately, no evidence of faith in him. He's received the healing uh, from Jesus, but no evidence of actually putting his faith and trust in Jesus. And what this does, it nicely sets up what's going to come next with this dispute over the Sabbath. Mike will be looking at that next week. We're going to leave that there. Let me just, um, from this story, I just want to pick out three quick things and then I'd love us to spend some time worshipping. I'd love to pray for the sick today. If you know that you are uh, unwell in some way, we would love to pray for you. So I'm just putting that out there now. When we get to the end, we'll sing a bit and then I'd love to pray for you if you are sick. And we'd love to do that. We do that as a church. We try and do it as often as we can because we believe God loves to, to meet with people and heal them. Okay, number one, three quick things. First one, healing comes from Jesus. The man in the story, the invalid, had actually put his faith in, in superstition, the superstition of the bubbly water, and his own ability to get into the water. That was kind of what he was saying. He was saying, when the water bubbles, I can't, can't get in, I need, some, I need some help. His faith was in this kind of superstition at the time of what would happen in the water, and the first one in would get healed. By, but, but actually, what we get by contrast is Jesus himself turning up and actually just saying, get up, walk, and that being what it happens. And his eyes were on the wrong thing. His eyes were on stuff, uh, superstition things happening, his own kind of ability or lack of ability to do anything about it. I couldn't get into the water. His eyes were not on Jesus. And the Bible says every good and perfect thing comes from God. Every good and perfect thing comes from God. And that includes supernatural healing. That comes from God and him alone. I mean, healing in all forms comes from God. If we broaden it out, theologians like to call it common grace, which is God's gracious hand towards everybody. We find that in ourselves. Our bodies naturally heal themselves of a lot of things. You ever got a little cut? You ever got a bruise? You don't have to do much about it. The body just heals itself. That's God's gracious hand to you and our bodies repairing ourselves. They do it every night. When you go to sleep, your body is busy repairing itself, ready for the next day. That is God's gracious hand towards all people. Even in the medical sciences and doctors and the use of hospitals and that thing, again, that's God's gracious hand toward everyone. And particularly us in our Western side, we can go to hospitals, we can go to doctors, we can get drugs. My wife has got laryngitis or just had it and went to the doctor, prescription, antibiotics, job done, sold. That's God's gracious hand towards us. So even healing in the broadest sense is all about Jesus and all comes from him. But in the miraculous sense, it's all about him. It's God who heals. It's Jesus who comes and puts his hands on situations and deals with it. It's God who transforms people. And um, 
I don't know if you've ever been around people who've healed or you've seen people's healed, but God is at work in the world today, and he has been, just like he was in the stories we read in the Gospels, in Acts, as the church carried on, and throughout Christian history, church history up to today. I was in a meeting just um, this week on Thursday with um, a bunch of kind of church leaders. We get together um, and we pray and worship and we talk about things and church planning and other bits and pieces. And I got to share about what's happening here. But there was a guy there who was just saying, yeah, he's been, he'd, he'd been involved in some healing meetings recently. And he was telling the story about the woman who had no kneecap. He said, the woman came into this meeting, he, she had no kneecap. And when we mean no kneecap, there was nothing. He said, there was no bone. I put my hand on her leg, there was no bone there. And if you feel your kneecap, it's really obvious that you have one, both sides of your leg. And if you move it, you know, hold it and it can move. And, he's, and she said, I've got no kneecap, I want you to pray that God gives me a new kneecap. <laughs> okay, how about a headache, you know? We can start with that. He said, right, so he prayed, he prayed, and he said he, he, said he, felt, he felt, he said he had his hand on the end, he said he felt a seed. That's, that was his words. He said, I felt a seed. Thought, what do you mean? And he said, there was a little, there was something there that was hard, but it was really small. And so he said, so we prayed again. And he said, and it grew, it got big. I actually watched it grow and grow and grow till she had a full kneecap on the, the leg with no kneecap. So he said, there was now a full kneecap that I could put my hand on. I watched it grow, ripple under the skin. And we're like, really? And he said, yeah. And, he said, and then, do you know what she said? The woman said, well, if I've got a kneecap, that's great, but I now need some tendons to hold it in place and make sure it all, make sure it doesn't, it's not just a bit of, bone, because they, they moved, they pulled all the bits out, you know, and I'm like, mm. so he prayed again with the, the team that were with him, and he said, I watched the leg ripple, as what could only have been whatever was there, tendons and sinews, whatever bits held the kneecap together, and he said, then she got up and ran around the room jumping, because she could now move her leg, it was now healed, and I'm saying, <laughs> wow, that is amazing, but that's what God's doing today. And he had other stories of things that he had seen with um, heal, ears, kind of the deaf ears opening uh, and, and being healed. But it was actually, this is what God is doing today. Signs one, he said, all we did was pray and ask Jesus to come and do something. And, and that's what happened. And it was amazing. And I don't know if you've been around um, people who've been healed or heard stories out, but if you had, ask, talk to people about them, learn their stories. Philip and Wendy's daughter, Sarah, who I know, had a long-term ailment for many years. If you haven't heard the story of what happened with her daughter, get them around there and ask them to tell you. It's stunning what happened with her. A long-term ailment that she couldn't even get out kind of the house. And she's a doctor. How long has she been a doctor now? <laughs> Nearly two years. She's a doctor. She changed for a doctor. She couldn't even get out of bed, spend more than half an hour awake because she had chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, then she went to university, trained as a doctor, and she's now working in the hospital. How many, how many hours a week? Far too many. <laughs> 70, 80 hours a week. God healed her like that. Amazing. If you haven't heard the full story, it's much better when they tell it and much longer. Um, get them around and listen to the story. Jesus, healing comes from God and he, he heals today. The second one, healing can cause us to miss Jesus. Healing can cause us to miss Jesus. This man had been invalid for 38 years. He was healed in an instant. Just with word, eight words it's recorded there. Well, they're eight words in our English. I don't know what they were in whatever Jesus, in Aramaic Jesus was speaking. But he was healed. He got up. And what happened to him at the end? He didn't seem to respond to Jesus in any way whatsoever. Those who were around him, Jews, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, the leaders, those in authority, 
This guy's been healed of 38 years of lying on a bed, on a mat, being weighted on and carried around because he just can't do anything. Why is he carrying his mat on the Sabbath? Sorry, let me just go back. 38 years healed in an instant. Yeah, about the mat. You really shouldn't be carrying the mat. And he missed it. They, they missed it. It was the Word of God. God the Son was there amongst them and he performed a healing on this guy and it seems like everybody missed it. In the story, you've got the guy, the man seemed to miss it and those, the kind of, those around him and authorities, they missed it. And healings can cause us to do that, to miss the point of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the story, we can look at the story and think, oh man, how crazy is that? But for us, we can do the same. We can sometimes, healings can cause us to miss things. And one of the key ones, as I was thinking about it, I know that I've stumbled over, and I know many others stumble. What's the thing that we stumble over when we hear about a miraculous healing, a miraculous event in people's life? The question that I've heard come up oodles of times, and I've asked myself plenty of them as well, is why wasn't everyone healed? We pray this person and they're miraculously healed over there, but there's a sick guy over here or girl who wasn't healed. And actually, we can even, we can even miss Jesus. Jesus healed someone. Yeah, but what? Jesus healed somebody. But what about Jesus healed this guy? If you remember the pool of Bethesda, House of Mercy, there were five roof colonnades. Five. Full of lame, paralyzed, and blind. How many did Jesus heal? from what we can see, one guy. Jesus healed someone, and sometimes we can fall over it and miss it, the fact that he, he, he healed. He didn't have to heal anybody. He's God. He doesn't, he's not obligated to us. He doesn't have to do anything. But Jesus broke in and healed. And so, when it comes to healing, let's not let it miss the point. It's about Jesus. It's about coming back to him. It's about celebrating what he's done, because he alone is worthy of our praise. And the last one, Healing can lead to faith in Jesus. If we look at the two stories that John puts side by side in his Gospel, there's this one this week and there's the one we looked at last week, the healing of the official son. Both were healings. Both were miraculous. Both were completely stunning. Guy who's been on a mat 38 years gets up. The other one was a boy was dying. He was at death's door. There's nothing they could have done. And the dad leaves him, travels for about 20 miles to Jesus and said, would you heal my son. And Jesus basically says again, just go, your son is well. And he travels back and the servants meet him on the way and they said, your son is recovering, he's, he's well. And he said, when was that? And they tell him the time, he said, that's the time Jesus said he's going to be well. So he matches the dots up, Jesus healed my son. How do they both respond? How did the man in this last, last week's story respond? He put his faith and trust in Jesus and what was, what was the ripple effect? His entire household got saved, it said. His entire household believed in Jesus. There was a healing, a miraculous one, a boy, we don't know how old, but a boy was young, was dying. Very painful, very tragic. He's healed by Jesus. They all put their faith and trust in him. We've got a guy here, 38 years an invalid. All those people watching, all those people around him. He's healed. What happens? 
for carrying your mat. And the, and the man doesn't seem, wants to grasp Jesus up so he doesn't get himself into trouble. Two incredible miracles that happen side by side, yet the response, the outworking of them is totally different. Healings are wonderful. We're going to pray for them. We want them. And they can point us to Jesus. They can put our faith in Jesus. But it doesn't always work like that. But we want to believe in them. We want to pray with them. Jesus demonstrates them. And we always want to pray for the sick and be doing that as part of our kind of church culture. But the aim of it always is to point people to Jesus. That's what we want. We want people to meet Jesus for themselves. Not healings in and of themselves, although as good as they can be, but actually to get men and women to Jesus. We believe that it's a sign of God's kingdom breaking in, people being healed. We believe it's a sign of God's love for people, that he loves them. We know that in heaven there is no sickness. It says it in Revelation. No more sickness and no more dying and no more tears. It's all, it's all gone. We know that what the future holds and we want to see that breaking into the present more and more with men and women being healed. But ultimately we want them to be pointing to Jesus and getting themselves right with him. So we're going to pray for the sick now. Uh, we're going to worship, sing a bit, and we'd love to pray for you if you are unwell. We also believe that God speaks today, and so we're happy. If you feel that God's speaking to you about someone who's ill, we've had people regularly use what we call words of knowledge, where they've, God's given them some sort of insight into an ailment that someone has. We'd love to, if you want to move in that, we'd love to have opportunity to give those out and pray for that. And we just want to lay hands on people and see them meet with Jesus today. Amen. Should we do that? Good. So do you want to stand up? Let's sing a song or two to put our eyes firmly on Jesus and then we want to pray um, for those who are sick who would like to uh, receive healing. The kids will come back in at some time. The kids workers will bring them in and we'll get them involved um, as well. So, over to you, Matthew.